I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning you... uh, This is another Sunday morning. Lord, we can so easily um, just be here as we would the other Sundays, and we could see this as fairly commonplace. But Lord, I pray that we would be more true uh, than that. Lord, I pray that it would never be commonplace for us to engage the living God in song, to know that when you cause us to remember your name, you're present and you're blessing us. Lord, I pray that what you find this morning with this people who are gathered here in your name is a people of complete devotion to you, not partial. Lord, I pray this morning as we open up the word, as we engage you in the word, and more importantly, as you engage us, Lord, my prayer is that, uh, that you would break us, as we've already sung this morning, uh, and that you would... Um, take us, a bunch of very fragile and common vessels, broken by your word, and that you would build us up and use us as you see fit, that we might be vessels of mercy, communicating uh, your beautiful truths in spirit and in truth. Lord, give us uh, clarity of thought this morning and arrest our emotions and, our, and our, our souls. I pray that our souls would really be affected, and I pray that you would be glorified in this time. Ultimately, Everything that we do when we gather here is about you and your glory and it being put on display so people can see how great you are. Lord, we thank you for the truths that you reveal to us. We thank you for the privilege it is to worship you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're talking about song. Last week we, we uh, began the first part of uh, this that'll be a, a few parts. And... Uh, Worship is a big deal, and it goes beyond song. But sometimes we can talk about worship in terms to where we diminish the importance of song. And so I want you all to know that as I'm talking about song and worship very specifically this morning, that worship is much bigger than song. Worship is your entire life. We're to live our lives for the glory of God. That's lives of worship. And worship is about submitting to him, being transformed by the renewal of your minds so that you might, in fact, be a unified, pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. And so worship is far more than just songs, but songs are very important. The song portion of our worship is very important, and it need not be made light of. And so this morning, we're focusing on the specifics of the song. I'd like to confess before I even start that there's a lot of things I'm very passionate about in reference to doing this right, to worshiping rightly, to leading God's people rightly in worship. 
And I'm very passionate about these things in large part because I've done almost all of them wrong at some point. When I look back at my first days of of leading worship and and writing songs and the content of them and the way that it was done, man, I made a mockery of it. And the Lord, in his very, very patient grace and mercy, um, showed me my foolishness and and continues weekly to show me that foolishness. And so this morning, we're talking about um, what I believe Scripture says is the right content of our song, lyrically and spiritually, um, but we haven't arrived yet. No, no one on our worship team has arrived. We are working. We are holding each other accountable. We want the song to be wholehearted. But we are learning new things every week through the preached word. And we will humbly submit as the Lord reveals those things to us. So last week we saw that the reason that we sing is that the Lord has ordained that it be so. Um, that's important because that shows us that it wasn't just someone's idea along the way that kind of caught on. It wasn't like, hey, we sing in these other venues. Why don't we just start singing here and when we gather for for worship as God's people? Why don't we start doing that? It it wasn't that, and then it just caught on. It wasn't that David was just had a heart for music and, and wanted to implement that as a part of worship. What in fact we saw, that the reason that we sing, the reason that we just did what we do and that we do it week after week when we gather is because it's been ordained by God. During the times of the Mosaic Tabernacle, the Lord revealed that he would be worshiped by his people through sacrificial offering. This was the means by which his people would engage him in worship. So what we can say is that in the Mosaic Tabernacle, and don't just, when you hear Mosaic and Davidic, don't just go, Old Testament, boring, and fall asleep. It's really important that we understand Mosaic Tabernacle, Davidic Tabernacle, and what we're doing now. They're all connected. God didn't just change his mind from one to the other. He reveals more and more what his will is so that we can be true in our worship and pleasing to God. That's why you exist. If you don't care about the glory of the Lord, you are living outside of your created purpose. So listen closely as we can talk about this. In the Mosaic Tabernacle, we can say that there was worship, but there was no song. A song existed. People sang, but there was no corporate worship and song gathering in the Mosaic Tabernacle. And times changed in the Davidic Tabernacle. First Chronicles 28 19 indicates that all that David revealed about how, and you can go ahead and turn over to 1 Chronicles 16 right now. In 1 Chronicles 28, 19, God reveals that all the stuff that David said about the order and the form and who does what in the tabernacle and what offering is pleasing and why we would sing now was all revealed to David by God in writing. Do you hear that? That's important. Everything that David spoke about was revealed by God to him in writing. So anything you hear David saying throughout all 1 Chronicles into 2 Chronicles, anything you hear Solomon saying in reference to what David said about tabernacle worship, hear God's voice because they're sharing what God said. It's kind of like when you hear preaching up here. It's not just you're hearing what the pastor wanted to say that day. Hear what the Lord is revealing through the preached word. And so hear God's voice in that. So in fact, it was God who revealed through David that singing would be a very important part of the way that the people of God would worship God. A transition was being made where God showed it to be his desire that his people worship him in song. So what what change took place was that rather than presenting this animal for offering, we gather and we present ourselves, not just as individual units, but as one unit glorified 
to be glorified, now perfectly unified in Christ. Does that make sense? So we don't present this animal. We come together and we present ourselves to the Lord as one in Christ. We claim the name of Christ and we confess our sins. And we know that because of Christ, we are forgiven and we are absolved. We're released from the guilt of that sin. And rather than the smoke of a burnt offering sacrifice ascending to the Lord and it being pleasing to Him, its aroma, we ascend to God in praises. And our sacrifice of praise is pleasing to Him. So we understand song in light of sacrifice. And what we now bring to God is a sacrifice of praise. So the Levites were these guys who were kind of this first worship team kind of people. And so the Levites are important. We talked about them briefly last week. But what we need to know about the Levites is that when it was time for the song portion of worship to happen and people to be led in worship, it was the Levites who were responsible for making sure that was done the right way. In the Mosaic Tabernacle, these Levites, they would... um, they were responsible for the, uh, the, the utensils in the tabernacle. And what they would do is, as people brought their offerings, they would assist the people with, and help them in their offering. And it's interesting because when it goes to the Davidic tabernacle, it's not that their responsibilities changed, but they were um, broadened to include, rather than taking care of the specifics and assisting people with their offering, now the Levitical... Um, the Levitical musicians and the Levitical chorus and all these people would assist the people in bringing their sacrifice of praise to the Lord. They were the ones who would bear up the ark when it was being carried. Now these Levites would bear up the sacrifice of praise and assist God's people in worshiping wholeheartedly. So the thing that we saw last week, the first thing that came out was that our song is all about God. It's all about God. The first few verses in First Chronicles 16, which we're going to jump into very specifically here in a moment, are all about the Lord. And one of the requirements of the earliest Levitical worship leaders, according to Second Chronicles 30, was that the Levitical song leaders had a good understanding of Yahweh. You know what that means? It means it wasn't enough that they could just play the lyre. It wasn't enough that they could just sing pretty. They had to have a good understanding of Yahweh or else they were only leading in a song. They weren't leading in worship. Similarly, everyone who you see leading worship here, we hold each other accountable. We go through the preached word. We, we do similarly together kind of what happens in small groups to an extent, where we're trying to edify each other and build one another up because we need to have a good understanding of Yahweh or else we're just playing music. So last week we saw why we sing, and today we're going to focus on the content of what we sing. The content And the aim of our song is really, really important. It takes thought and it takes understanding. It takes takes some preparation. There's like some assembly required. Before you come, you got to think. You got to hear those words. Think about what they mean. Like, come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. What does that even mean? It's pretty. We could sing it very disconnected from the actual truth of the lyric, but we're to worship in spirit and in truth. So our worship, the content, it takes thought, it takes understanding, and it takes preparation. Remember the warning that you heard this morning in Amos 5 about God not accepting their worship? You heard those words in Amos 5 that I, I get away from me, the, the, the noise of your song. It's not worship, it's just noise. I hate, I despise your feasts and your solemn assemblies. God's saying I won't have it because it's not right. It's not enough that you're just going through the motions. The content is important. 
The problem in Amos' time was that Israel was populated with um, what, as uh, Peter Lightheart, a phenomenal author, he says, Israel was populated in Amos' time with would-be Davidic musicians who had David's aesthetic tastes but wholly lacked his passion for righteousness. Hear this. This is ironic. Israel was populated with would-be Davidic musicians who had David's aesthetic tastes but wholly lacked his passion for righteousness. Now, we wouldn't know anything about this, would we? A culture inundated with theologically illiterate would-be worship leaders? I've been that. I've done that. I've gotten up to lead the people in worship early on uh, in my ministry, and I didn't have a real clear understanding of what it was that I was singing. And here's the thing. This is dangerous, because if you don't have an understanding of what God desires and an understanding of God's righteousness, the truth becomes blurred. And rather than assisting people in worship, you can be a big fat hindrance to the whole time. And so it's really important that truth is clear and it's not uh, blurred. So it's not enough to simply want the music and worship to sound great, though I believe great sound to be important, but there must be a passion for righteousness. That's what they lacked. When God said, it stinks. Your song, it, it stinks. I'll not listen to it. Your solemn assembly has no merit. It's, it's in vain. Your hearts are far from me. When you hear that, the problem is, is they didn't have a desire for God's righteousness, but they really liked the ideas that David had about singing. They really liked what David said about like getting the lyres and the cymbals and 288 people in a choir. Woo, that's a good choir. And they're only the good ones. They can't just be up there because they want to sing. So we're getting led in worship by these people who are good. We love that. We'll be a part of that. But they didn't care about righteousness. And the only possible way for one to have that passion is to have an understanding of God. The people leading in worship, if you don't have an understanding of Yahweh, if you don't understand who God is, what he's been doing from the beginning of time, and what he will do for in the rest of time, when time merges back into eternity, if you don't have that understanding, righteousness will not matter to you at all. But it mattered to God in such a degree that he required perfect righteousness. This is the reason he sent his son, Christ, to accomplish what we could not, that is perfect righteousness, and count his perfect righteousness as ours. So we should care about the whole picture, not just part of it. So what we're singing when we come before God with this, uh, what are we singing when we come before God with the sacrifice of praise? First Chronicles 16, is this only symbolic? Is something actually happening when we sing? What is the lyrical content of our song? What is the spiritual content of our song? First Chronicles 16, verse 7, it says, Then on that day... Uh, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. What we sing and when we sing uh, is hugely important. This song that we're about to look at is the first song that was ever sung before the ark. And we learned last week that the ark was representative of the glory of God, the presence of God. God established in Moses' time that the ark be built um, out of specific wood, covered by specific gold, and carried a specific way. So that it was representative of his presence. And in the Mosaic tabernacle, he would take with him his tabernacle. And in the Davidic tabernacle, you're seeing something being built that's not moving as much. It's more, um, it's, it's in a place. And it's representative of the way, this song is representative of the way that we're called to worship God today in song. So look at verse 8. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. 
We thank the Lord that he is present and that his presence is a blessing to us, not a means to another blessing. Remember Exodus 20, 24? God says, I will, when I cause you to remember my name, I will be present and I will bless you. That means that we don't muster what's within us to remember his name. Anytime you remember the name of the Lord, it's because he's caused you to do that. And then not only has he been so generous and wonderful as to cause us to remember his name, but when we remember his name, he shows up and he blesses us. And the blessing is God, not a means to another blessing. The whole health, wealth, junk comes from, oh, he's going to bless you. So God's present. Ask him, ask him what you want. No, God's presence is a blessing. And if you don't see God's presence as a blessing, you do not have a good understanding of who God is. God causes us to remember his name, and upon doing so, he's present and he's blessing us. And it's not, here's what we got to get this morning. It's not merely symbolic. It's not a symbolic presence of a symbolic blessing. This is as real as real gets. He actually causes us to remember his name. He actually is present, and he actually blesses us with his presence. It's, worship is all about real life. It's not this mystical, ethereal, feel-good step out of real life into an hour on a Sunday so I feel better when I step back into real life. When we gather here, it's all about real life. We're really confessing our sins. We're really dependent upon God. This is not just symbolic when we sing, and it's not just factual either. Remember what we talked about last week, this, I have a fear here at Crosspoint because of the way that I led for a couple years here at the beginning, that I was so focused on the lyric, I was so focused on making sure we, what we sing is right, that I kind of abandoned melody and tune and arrangement and instrumentation to a degree. And my fear is that what you can do is you can, you can come to the Lord and worship, and yes, uh, we, he is very factually, he is a sovereign God, and we will worship him very factually. We will not get too excited. Our emotions will not overflow too much. We will not let our souls get affected. Too. He is very factual. He is very good. I fear that for us. I've, I've made the mistake of thinking, well, just sing what's true, and we're fine. Spirit and truth, we're going to learn more about it. We make known his deeds here. Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds. This is the part that really opens up the content of our song. The content of our song is to make known his deeds. God has done an immeasurable amount of amazing deeds throughout the course of time. He has conquered and shattered. He has forgiven and redeemed. He has healed, and he's even brought the dead back to life. As his deeds continue and as he continues to do what he does, we sing about it and we write songs about it. At the end of 1 Chronicles, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the good kings. You had David, and then you had Solomon who finished the work that God started in David. The temple is up and going. And then from there, you had some good king, bad king, bad king, good king, good king, bad king. And then Hezekiah comes up, and he's a good king. And he makes a notable transformation in the temple. And he goes, he says, let's clear this out. Get all the wicked stuff out. Get the idols out. Remove the sin. This is a place of worship. Fix the doors. So when people walk in here, they know what this is. He fixes it. And one of the things that he does is, that he does is, mm, you like that? <laughs> One of the things that he does is, is he canonizes all that David and Asaph had written. David and Asaph wrote a lot for these worship times. They would engage the Lord, real engagement, not just symbolically. And they would write songs. And these songs uh, 
were good for corporate worship. And so Hezekiah said, you know what? We're going to canonize those things. We are going to um, accept them as genuine. We're going to make them a part, a regular part of our corporate worship. So he canonized these songs. And there's a lot of songs as you look at it. In large part, the book of Psalms is, uh, is a lot of what Asaph and, and David uh, wrote. And as you look through there, you will find that they wrote about what God did, and they included many songs about things that we, in fact, rarely sing about. Just two brief examples. One is specific songs about their greatest failures so as to remind us and others of God's redemption. I think we probably have some more songs to write about that. Our greatest failures, can we be that honest and worship? Like, what if we sat down as a church and said, what's the dumbest thing we've done in the last six years? Let's write a song about it so as to remember how mighty God is to redeem us from such foolishness. Songs to their enemies. How many, how many songs do we sing to our enemies about how they will be crushed if they don't fear the one true God? Are we willing to be that honest and confrontational and confessional in our songs? And as part of what was approved and canonized for our corporate worship, are songs about writing new songs as God continues to move. Sing to the Lord a new song. So that's why we still write and we still arrange. And we still get the instrumentation together and we put it together and we want all of it to represent the character of God. That's why we still do that. It's not just a right that we just claim because we want to write songs and we like it and it makes us feel good. God says, no, I'm still moving and you're still writing. And as long as I'm still moving, don't stop. There are still many songs to be sung about God's infinite greatness One way to say that is that what is still left for us to write is only limited to the infinite greatness that is our great God. Another note to make here, um, this community here at Crosspoint is oddly, oddly, oddly uh, inundated with um, gifted musicians, songwriters, people who really genuinely love the Lord and who are eager to lead. I mean, there's a number of different worship teams who lead, combinations of people who are serving, and not even just here, but even in the technology stuff and the sound stuff. There's a lot that goes into it, but there's this weird concentration of of gifted musicians who love the Lord and would desire to lead God's people in worship, and it's beautiful. I love it. I still can't figure it out. It weirds me out every day. But a note that we need to make, especially in light of that, is this. And I need this. I need this. Don't hear me, you need this. I need this. We need this. Another note to make is that David is far more concerned with people hearing about God than he is about people hearing his song about God. It's very important. The reason David's songs were so great is that he cared about people hearing about God, not just his song about God. I mean, that can go a number of directions. Do you want people to hear about how great God is, or do you just want them to hear your story about how great he is? Let, let that be a means to them seeing God's greatness. I was meeting with someone yesterday, and they were talking about this uh, kind of a dark season that they're in, some frustration that they're, that they're facing. And I immediately thought to myself, oh, I wrote a song called Hide Not Your Face From Me. And, it, and then I was like, wait, do I want them to hear my song about how God redeems you out of that, or do I want them to hear that God redeems? David was far more concerned with people, about hearing, with people hearing about God than he was people hearing his song about God. One gives balance to the other. To the degree that you care more about people hearing your song or your lesson plan or your sermon or your blog or your Facebook update or whatever, 
to the degree that you care more about people hearing that than hearing about God, to that degree, your song will be found lacking. And I would say your entire worship ministry could be found lacking if there's, a, if there's an imbalance there. Look at verse 9. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Our worship and song requires the engagement of the heart and engagement with the heart. The heart changed by God is the heart that is moved to sing to God. As a believer, it's just kind of what it is. You may not be a musical person at all. If God's changing your heart, he will move your heart to sing about him. And you may have a horrible voice. That's okay. He's moving your heart to sing about him and to him and for him. This is what it means to be wholehearted in worship. It goes beyond just words, and it includes complete devotion. A half-hearted, partial devotion in song is a stench to the Lord, as he revealed in Amos 5. Half-hearted, partial devotion is a stench to the Lord. Look at verse 11, 1 Chronicles 16, 11 through 12. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. Uh, we seek the Lord. Throughout Scripture, you'll, you'll hear, seek the Lord and live. Seek the Lord and live. So that means you can't live if you don't seek the Lord. And we only seek the Lord because he causes us to remember his name, right? He does all the heavy lifting. And so seek the Lord and live. The reason we see we need to see, seek the Lord and live is because if you have no life, you have no reason to sing. If you're still walking around in death, unredeemed, unknowing about the promises of God in Christ and how they're fulfilled and how it's been going on for a long time, you have no reason to really sing. Or your song will be very sad and futile. And so here, we seek the Lord and live because without life, there's no reason for us to sing. And one way to seek the Lord is to remember his works. That's what's going on here. When not mindful of what God is doing, you can get there by remembering what he has done. When you're having a hard season in life and you're at a place where you're like, I, am, I just don't know what God's doing. I'm so confused. It's so dark. I'm so frustrated. Remember what God has done. It's the same way with thankfulness. If you're not thankful for the many blessings that are in your life because they're kind of out of your sight, just make a list of all that God's done and you're stirred to thankfulness. We seek him because we desperately need him to do what he's called us to do. And look at verses 13 through 22. A large portion of this song is dedicated to talking about what God has done. A very large portion, verses 13 through 22. O offspring of Israel, his servants, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are on all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. This is your story. As I'm reading this, this isn't their story a long time ago. It's our story. The people of God, this is how it began. You need to know your heritage and this is part of the song. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are on all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. And in verse 16, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed as a statute to Jacob. Are we familiar with Abraham? Are we familiar with Isaac? Are we familiar with Jacob? As an everlasting covenant to Israel, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in number and of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress you. He rebuked kings on their account, 
saying, touch not my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. So when we try to seek God by remembering what he's done, verses 13 through 22 does just that. Part of this inaugural song of Israel and worshiping the Lord who is present is to include the songs about the specific things that he has done in the lives of his redeemed people. And I want us to see that that is not mundane to the Lord. That is not overdoing it to the Lord. Like you would think if there was someone who's done a lot of great things and we sat him up here and we just sat and talked about great things that they'd done, they might be like, oh, this is awkward. I wish they'd sing about something else. God doesn't do that. God's all about his glory. He doesn't think it's awkward when we sit for even hours on end saying, God, you've done this. God, you've done this. And then when we go home and say, God, and you do this, and you've done this, and you show this, and these dots are connected from here to here, and God, you're moving. He doesn't get tired of that. He's not like, oh, stop. (laughs) He's God. He's all about his glory, and he always has been, and he always will be, and we must recount his deeds. They're amazing that we can know them as a privilege and a gift. And this reminds us also of how far we've been brought. We were sojourners of little account. The song actually reminds you of how far you've been brought. Sojourners of little account. Kings were rebuked on our account. That's interesting, right? Look at verse 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. This is a huge transition. Here the song shifts from the nation of Israel singing to and about God to the song being opened up to all the nations of the earth. That's really innovative for the time. They're like... All the nations, like the nation of Israel is gathering. They're a people of God. They've had the Mosaic Tabernacle. They're in the Davidic Tabernacle. They know that God has chosen Israel. And what's being shown here is that the song opens up to, yes, we are blessed. And this is amazing. How wonderful is this? And then they lift their eyes to the horizon and they see the rest of the nations and they say, y'all sing along. This is part of your song too. This is extremely innovative for the time. We are quite used to hearing songs Uh, or hearing songs used as a means of evangelism. Like when we sing, come bless the Lord, or whatever, you know, y'all come, y'all hear the gospel through the song and respond by repenting and following Jesus. That's not all that innovative for us, but we got it from this. It was hugely innovative at this time. It was not the norm. Um, The song shifts from the nation to the nations, even Gentile nations. This is a big deal. Even Gentile nations, even the structure of the Davidic temple was different from the Mosaic in that it wasn't so closed off and it showed that it was actually more Gentile friendly, even in its structure. That's good news to a room full of Gentiles. That should be very good news to a room full of Gentiles. Gentile friendly structure, Gentile friendly song. In a sense, they're singing, there's more room at the table. It's not even full yet. There's still time to grab a seat. Like we're seated at the table of the king. And what they're saying is, hey, there's still more room. Come on, nation and nations now. It's interesting. Do you remember when last week we talked about Uzzah and how they stumbled because they were carrying the ark wrong? Rather than carrying it the way the Lord said, through the poles with the acacia wood that's coated in gold, um, they decided, well, it'd be more efficient to throw it on an ox cart and let the arks pull it because this thing's heavy. It's covered in gold. And so it's, it, it shakes and Uzzah says, I got it. And he dies on the spot because he thought that he could just 
just take care of it. It was, <clears throat> they were not working according to what the Lord had said. And it's interesting because for three months, they, they stopped and they said, okay, where can we put this thing so that we don't make any more mistakes? We don't like people dying during worship. This is not ideal. We have wronged the Lord. What happened? And so for, for three months, the ark stayed at Obed-Edom's house. And it's interesting because Obed-Edom was a Gentile, a God-fearing Gentile. The Lord's always doing so much more than you know. It's amazing. They stored the ark at someone's house who wasn't an Israelite. And there it's at Obed-Edom's house, a God-fearing Gentile. And it says that for three months, his house was blessed. Why? Because the presence of the Lord was there as it resided in the ark. This beautiful picture of it being opened up to the nations. And that's what our song does. Hear that the call of God is not just the children of the flesh, not just ethnic Israelites, but the children of the promise, the promise that's perfectly fulfilled in Christ. So Christ followers, Gentile Christ followers are included in this, and it's a beautiful part of the song. Verse 24 through 25. I'll reread 24 into 25. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be held in awe above all gods. All lowercase g gods, the big g god, is to be held in awe above all. All of God's marvelous works are to be heard among all peoples. That's why you need to have a good understanding of who Yahweh is. If you go overseas somewhere to communicate the gospel and don't know who Yahweh is, you're not going to be able to tell of all of his marvelous works. And two of his works are not enough. We need more because there are more. And God uses all those for the purpose of representing his glory. Because of God's marvelous works, which are representative of who he is. See, God does what he does because of who he is. God doesn't just do stuff randomly. He does what he does because of who he is. And so because of his marvelous works, which are representative of who he is, all, all is an important part of our song. When you fall out of awe of God, there is no possible way to sing rightly. If we gather and stuff starts, music sounds great, the arrangements are awesome, the new song is cool. If you're not in awe of the Lord, you can't sing that song rightly. Paul Tripp made a comment that if you live in the awe of the glory of God, you should want everything to exemplify it. So if you live in awe of God, you'll want your job to exemplify it. You'll want the way you talk to your kids to exemplify it. And you will want your song, the corporate expression of a people, to exemplify it. An emotional frenzy is not enough. We can get really, really good at the emotional frenzy. When I first started leading worship, I would judge the success of the worship service by how many people cried. And how many people cried tonight? It's pretty lame. That's shallow and foolish. It's not just an emotional frenzy. However, you don't go to the extreme and say, tears are unnecessary. Stop crying. Worship in spirit and in truth. You know, that doesn't make sense either. There's got to be a balance here. And it has to do with awe. God has chosen us to be weak because he wants us to retain our sense of awe. His strength is made perfect in your weakness. So we gather as not a people who have it all figured out, who are all slick, but a people who are weak in desperate need of God, and that helps us to retain our sense of awe. And here's the thing that blew me away last night as I was thinking about this. 
Do you remember in Amos 5 where we talked about it just a moment ago where it said, get away from me, your solemn assemblies, the noise. It's just noise. You're not worshiping. And God says it's a stench. The problem with the leadership and the people in Amos 5, the Israel, the population of Israel is populated with would-be Davidic musicians who liked his aesthetic taste but didn't understand righteousness. What happened was they had fallen out of awe of God and they were in awe of themselves. They were in awe of their pretty songs. They were in awe of their, did you hear so-and-so's lyre solo today? That was fantastic. They were in awe of their solemn assemblies. Look at how we gather and all these people are here. And look at what we're doing. They were in awe of themselves. They were even in awe of their structures, their buildings. We wouldn't know anything about what that's like, would we? To gather for corporate worship and be in awe of the building and in awe of the program, in awe of how we do things so smoothly and in awe of the song and in awe of slick preaching and in awe of how we're all here on time, whatever. All is to be given to God. We stand in awe of him because he's revealing himself to us. He allows us to see his greatness. And if we lose that awe, our song is nothing. Look at verse 26. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Part of what we're called to do in song is to call out the fake when we see it. That's an idol, not God. Idol, not God. Oh, like when we sing the words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That means even though you've tasted of the love of God, you're trying to make something else God, and you're prone to wander. So confess that in the song. Don't just symbolically confess it. Actually confess it. That's the thing about our worship in song. We're not just symbolically representing possibilities of what it would be like if we actually engaged the Lord one day in heaven. He's present. And so we're actually engaging him. There's actual confession. There's actual awe in that song because of the movement of the Lord. Look at verses 27 through 30. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O clans of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established and shall never be moved. All glory is due to God and our song in it We are actually taking part in the proclamation of true glory. The glory can be seen and heard and felt in the song because of what God chooses to do through the song. It's not an emotional frenzy, but you can taste and see the goodness of the Lord in a song that's well written to his glory. It's more than just symbolic. It's more than just something that's representative of what it could be if we saw him one day. He allows us to see him now, and the song has a lot of power in it because of that. Look at verses 31 through 34. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Look at 35 and 36. Say also, save us, O God, of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. 
Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. This is the third part of the song. This is the next major transition. The nation of Israel is encouraged to praise God. Then all the nations everywhere are encouraged to praise God. And now creation itself, the cosmos, the heavens, the seas, the trees are encouraged to join in the song. So at this point, the purpose of song is that everything not creator can worship creator. Everything created to represent the glory of God, sing with whatever you have. The song is a reflection of God's intentions from the beginning, that the entire earth would be filled with his glory. All of creation exists for his glory. So all things, not creator, worship the creator. That every voice, be it a great voice or a mediocre voice or a horrible voice, every voice, every rattling leaf of every tree, every crash of every wave, every strike of lightning and roar of thunder, that all of it would proclaim the steadfast love of our God. Our songs are meant to not only represent this symbolically, but to do this actually. Look at verses 16 through uh, 16:4, chapter 16, verse 4. David, then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. The song does this. The song does invoke the presence of the Lord. Lord, we want you to be present. Hey, look, we're remembering your name. Why did we do that? Because you caused us to. And he's present with a song. It actually happens. And here, the song does serve as evangelism. You're not just representing evangelism symbolically in the song. You're saying, come to the table. Come be a part of what God's doing. Repent and follow Jesus. Invokes, we invoke his name. There is evangelism. It is thankful. It's not just representative of what a thankful heart would be like. And it does praise the Lord. The song does use every note and every instrument and every lyric and every arrangement to proclaim the actual truths of God and to stir others to do the same. The instrumentation and voices do reflect the character of God. And their aim is to affect the soul with truth. When we lead you in worship and song, we want your soul to be affected. Not an emotional frenzy. Not silliness. Not just crying and then leaving and sinning. Changed by the Lord. We want you to be affected. We want your emotions to be moved. We want you to say, oh, I forgot how huge God is and how big of a deal it is that we gather to worship him. There's power in our song. And with it, Without God, the song is powerless. But there's power in the song when God takes it and uses it to change us. We're to let nothing come out of our mouths that's not edifying to others, that doesn't serve to build them up and increase their faith. Lightheart notes, edification is not the only concern in song, but even the most beautifully and skillfully performed music is a failure if it ignores the needs of the people of God. When we lead, we can't ignore your needs. We can't just work for hours and hours on a pretty song and play it skillfully and ignore the needs of the people of God. The song must be edifying and building up the people. So what are our needs? 
What does God aim to do in his people? The power of the song can change the people of God by the work of God if it is, in fact, a song that is right in response to God. In 2 Kings 3.15, you do not have to turn there, but if you take notes, which everybody should take notes all the time, write down 2 Kings 3.15. What's happening is that there is a war between the Israelites and the Moabites, and the Israelite kings, the leaders, are saying, what are we going to do because we've gotten to this place and there's no water? They need water for their animals and for the, the soldiers. And so what happens as they say, is there anybody who, who knows the words of the Lord who can talk to God? Is there anybody who can do that? And they bring in Elisha. They said, yeah, Elisha, I remember him. Call Elisha. And Elisha comes up, and he's kind of a smart aleck. It's really pretty funny throughout the whole chapter. He's like, I don't even want to talk to you. But because of the heritage, I will. And he says, bring me a musician. Like they just wanted Elisha's insight as to what the Lord wants. And Elisha says, bring me a musician. I mean, he might as well have said, bring me a donut. What do they have to do with each other? How are they connected? Bring me a musician. It's interesting because look what happens. It says, I'll read this to you. Listen closely. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And Elisha had the insight he needed. And there was victory in that part of the war because of the insight that was given by God. As God laid a hand on that musician... Worship is bigger than the song, but song is very, very important. Is there anything more powerful than the hand of the Lord? Anything? Is there anything more? Would you rather the musician have been affected by anything else other than God's powerful hand? While it is not mood music, it could be referred to as joy music. In Psalm 22.3 last week, we saw that the Spirit of God actually inhabits the praises of His people. 2 Kings 3.15 is an example of that. The musician plays, the hand of God is upon him, and there's power there. The Spirit inhabits the praises of his people. It says that in some verses that the Spirit is enthroned on the praises of, of Israel. So the Spirit inhabits the praises of his people. And it's not just to take those praises elsewhere, like a throne room, like to the Lord. We want, without the Spirit inhabiting our praises, they will never be pleasing to the Lord. There will not be a sweet aroma to him. But what also happens is this. The Spirit inhabits the praises of the people so as to affect the soul and change the heart of the singer and worshiper. See the connections here. This is, this is a very important connection because I believe this is what happened when, when David wrote this in 1 Chronicles 16. The Spirit is moving, and by the work of the Spirit, he's sending a song to the Lord and singing it with people, and it's pleasing to the Lord. But what does the Spirit always do? The Spirit produces fruit. Yes, the resounding answer of fruit. The Spirit produces fruit, right? And it's interesting because in Galatians, we see that there's truth that's been, um, uh, the, 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 the real truth was kind of not being seen clearly. And so we see the work of the Spirit there to say, no, 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 the work of the Spirit does this. It produces fruit, and this is the fruit of the Spirit. So the Spirit inhabits the praises of His people, and the Spirit always aims to produce fruit. And a fruit of the Spirit is what? Joy. So it's not mood music, but it could be called joy music. So as we sing, the Spirit inhabits our praises and produces joy in us. One way to look at this is, you don't feel joyful enough to sing to God? Shut up and sing until you are. You see that? 
God inhabits the praises of his people and, and actually produces the fruit of joy. If you don't feel like praising the Lord for his goodness today, praise the Lord for his goodness today, and he will, in fact, fill you with joy. It really happens. And the thing that, it, that hits me is that it's not just that you feel joyful. We don't just want song to be here to make you feel joyful. The Spirit doesn't just make you feel joyful. The Spirit produces the fruit of actual joy when we sing to the Lord. That's huge, monumental. And you cannot fake the movement of the Spirit. That's an emotional frenzy. That's a kind of a, oh, let's be cute and do whatever. I've done it, been there. Oh, man, I could do it next week on accident if I don't keep my eyes fixed on the Lord. But you can't fake the movement of the Spirit because he produces fruit. You can't fake the movement of the Spirit because the Spirit produces fruit. So if you sing and the Spirit moves and fills you with joy, you can't fake it because you're going to leave and go sin and disregard what the Lord has shown you. Will we all leave and sin to some degree? Yes, we're a fallen people, weak, desperately in need of the Lord. But the point is you can't fake fruit of the Spirit because it'll wither and die. The fruit of the Spirit is life-giving. Consider the other fruits. Are you not loving? Are you not peaceful? Are you not patient or kind? Are you not good and faithful? Are you not gentle? Are you not self-controlled? And one means of that happening is to sing until the Spirit makes it so that you are. He produces his fruit. He inhabits the praises of his people. The Puritans used to stop in the middle of the sermon. If the people seemed tired, if the Puritan preacher was up there and he saw a lot of this and this, he would stop, all right, worship team, come on back up. And they'd sing until souls were really affected. And the Spirit really produced patience and joy and that they were ready to re-engage the preached word. We may start doing that. <laughs> the song made them ready. It didn't just make them feel ready. Hear that. The song readied them. It didn't just make them feel ready because of the work of the Spirit. And this is where we're going to close. It readied them to hear the preached word. As important as the song is, as real as it is, as it is not just symbolically representative of what could happen if we engage the Lord, but we're in fact engaging the Lord, as important as the song is, as important as the lyrical content is, as important as the spiritual content is, as important as it is for everybody who's leading to have an understanding of Yahweh, as important as all of that is, it is still absolutely secondary to the preached word. It is absolutely secondary to the preached word. The preached word is the imperishable seed. Song will prepare you to receive it. The preached word is the imperishable seed. Song will be a means to help you to walk in it. The preached word is the imperishable seed. And song will be a means that we can remind each other of what was said. And we maybe need to write more songs about that preached word. But the point is, is that without the preached word, there's no possible way for us to be equipped for the work of ministry that takes place through worship and song. Truth and emotion are a part of it. Matthew 15, 8, a few closing verses. Matthew 15, 8, the Lord says, um, uh, your, your, your mouth and your words are praising me, but your hearts are far from me. And so what you're doing is you're worshiping me in vain. It's vanity. In John 4, 
Jesus desires to show us the white harvest of harlots in Samaria. And, uh, and he says to the woman at the well, he says, uh, it doesn't, the, the, the location isn't as important anymore. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. All the temple talk, all of, all of the things looking at the tabernacle and the temple and the sacrifice are all fulfilled in Jesus. All the promises of God, according to 2 Corinthians 1.20, find their yes in Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying to the woman at the well, she's saying, what about this? What about that? Ultimately, she's trying to skirt her own sin. And Jesus says, um, what's important now is that we worship in spirit and truth. And in fact, the Father is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. You can't separate truth from the emotion of our worship. It must be both. Uh, John Piper has a comment. He says, truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full of unspiritual fighters. Emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates flaky people who reject the discipline of rigorous thought. The worship comes from people, true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. That's my hope for us, that we would love the sound doctrine as communicated expositorily through the preached word, which is the imperishable seed, week after week after week after week, that we would be hungry for that. My wife and I were talking about how it's interesting how we, you can see it across the board in a number of areas, but, but uh, appetite increases with consumption. You would think it's the opposite. Oh, I'm full. I don't need any more. No. I went to a great restaurant this week, had the best steak I've maybe ever had, and I could have eaten another one. Appetite increases with consumption. When you have, like, that's why we tend to overeat sometimes. It's not that we eat and we're full. It's that we eat and we want more. Here with the, with the truths of the Lord, I hope that we would be a people who desire these deep and sound doctrines so that we can reflect the glory of the Lord, so that we can have a good understanding of who he is and be worshipful in our lives and lead others to do the same thing. Turn to Hebrews 10, 19. We will close with this and then we will worship the Lord in song. Jonathan Edwards made a comment about affections should be affected with nothing but the truth. So your affections should be moved and stirred but they should be affected with nothing but the truth by the work of the Spirit. And here we see Christ's work. Hebrews 10, 19 says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. When we sing here in a moment, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Corporate worship is an important time. Don't neglect it. But encouraging one another all the more as you, say, as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray.
Lord, I pray that as we draw near to you in worship, as we really confess our sins, as we really invoke your presence, as we really communicate the truth of the gospel, as we are really experiencing your glory, I pray that we would take great care to approach you the right way, to draw near to you not as fools, but to draw near to you as people who desire to offer a pure sacrifice of praise, to draw near to you as people affected by you, who desire to respond to you by loving you, by singing the most beautiful song we can sing, by being as wholehearted in it as we can be, and by knowing that that will spill out and affect our lives and the lives of others. Lord, we desire that you would come back soon. Lord, the thought that we will one day be in heaven praising you with no sin God, this room's full of sinners who are in the process of sanctification. And we are so thankful for the Lord that we could have even a glimpse of your glory. But to know that in heaven the sin will be gone and there will be no darkness and we will worship you wholeheartedly, not even remotely devoted to any other thing. To know that this is a taste of that, a real taste, not just symbolic, but real is a huge privilege, Lord. We eagerly anticipate that you would come back and take us home. And we, we desire to sing to that end. As the day draws near, we desire to be about worshiping you in everything we do and being serious about the songs we sing as we gather corporately to put your glory on display. Lord, if not for Christ, we would have no hope. If not for you causing us to remember your name, we would never remember. But because you've caused us to do so, we now remember it joyfully and we sing wholeheartedly, completely devoted to you and your will and your glory being seen in all the earth. We love you and we praise you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 33 says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. It's what the upright do. It's just who we are. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. It's what the people of God do. <clears throat> We're going to have the Lord's Supper these next couple minutes. I don't know if you know this or not, but eating is worship. Unfortunately, we can eat what we're worshiping or worship what we're eating. Supposed to eat what you're worshiping. We can worship what we're eating. Or as Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, you can actually worship idols as you eat. But ideally, eating is worship. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, when God made man, notice this He didn't show up and explain the Pythagorean theorem to Adam. He didn't sit down with him and explain quantum physics. To Adam. In his first conversation with newly created man, he gave him some food. Food. While we might suspect that Adam could think and process ideas and thoughts, we don't find him thinking on weighty ideas in the beginning. We find him created hungry. Hungry. God made man hungry and God provided what man needed. 
Contemporary Christian thought has lost this most basic form of worship as eating, where we have a need and God meets it. I fear thinking that weighty theological issues are worship at its finest. And while I treasure deep theological truths, and we all should, when I consider Adam in the garden, I just see simplicity. I see basic worship. A hungry man and a God that provides. I see worship in its most basic form. There's God giving good things to his creature and his creature doing what he said to do, taking and eating. Something else I see here is that I see God providing what food by itself can't provide. Jesus said, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This doesn't mean that man needs to have some additional things on the menu other than bread. It's not implying that he needs to have a balanced diet and that bread won't cut it. This is to be taken in its most literal sense. This doesn't mean that man needs some other stuff on the menu for a good life-giving diet like steak and fish and lots of omega-3 fatty acids. It means that man cannot live by eating something dead. This bread right here is dead. It's dead. Whatever you eat for lunch is going to be dead, I hope. <laughs> We're going to have some steak. It's dead. This is harvested grain. Harvested. Dead. It's even heated, cooked. It's dead. So how does something dead give life? That's what he's saying. Man cannot live by bread alone. God's got to be involved. Death does not beget life. Man cannot live by bread alone. He's got to have something else. Something has got to intervene. The giver of life has to intervene for life to take place. Death does not beget life unless God is involved. So in the garden, God gives food to his creature and his creature partakes because he's hungry. And the giver of life gives what only the giver of life can give, life by his word. So the supper is a beautiful picture of these simple realities. This bread and this cup, they don't give life. But when the giver of life is involved, they do. Man was made hungry, and he'll only find nourishment from the hand of our God. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Pray with me. God, as we take a little cup of juice, a little piece of bread, as we take lunch in a few minutes, dinner tonight, breakfast tomorrow morning, where we count you the giver of life, not breakfast. We count you the giver of life, even in the supper as we remember the life-giving work of the cross, the sin-covering work of the cross, 
the access providing work of the cross, we see life. Lord, we give you all the glory. We eat for your glory. Thank you for your provision. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the privilege it is to praise you. We thank you that you would ever call a room full of really just undeserving people to remember your name and to be able to feast in the way that we get to feast. It blows my mind, and I pray that we would always be in awe of who you are, that it would never be commonplace to us to gather and have the privilege of worshiping you as we do. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for Jesus, and we're completely dependent upon Jesus to walk in what we've heard. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all dismissed.